Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, your host, and it's great to have you with us wherever you are in the world. I hope you're keeping safe and well. We're in series six now, and uh, if you haven't caught our first episode featuring Richard Osman and Anthony Horowitz, then do go and seek it out, because it's well worth a listen. Well, we think so anyway. Uh, before we get into this, our second episode of series six, if you're a new listener or you haven't yet followed us on social media, then we urge you to do so, because we love to hear from you, and we love to say hello and every week in this series, we are giving away one of the books that we feature on the podcast. So to be in with your chance of winning, follow us at Off on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you are. Uh, say hello and look out for how to win the book giveaway. Anyway, enough from me. Let's get on with the podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on in the book-off. They are the author and academic Sarah Moss and the international best-selling author of the Charlie Parker novels, John Connolly. Hello to you both. Hello, Sarah. Hello. And hello, John. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, Joe. So great to have you both here and uh, thank you for joining me. I did a, a recording of one of these podcasts recently where, of course, naturally the first thing we discussed was the weather because we were all in different parts of the world. Naturally, I'm also going to ask you, so Sarah, where do we find you and what's the weather like? I'm in Dunleary and in Ireland it's been raining all morning and <laughs> I kept thinking I was going to go for a run because if I go for a run and get wet, I can then go swimming and it won't be awful, but I didn't. <laughs> and John, you're, you're, you're in Ireland as well, I believe. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too far down the road from Sarah in Rathgar in the centre of Dublin. Uh, yes, it's, 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 been pre- it's been pretty miserable here. So, you know, uh, it's perfect. <laughs> lockdown it's perfectly quarantine weather where you think actually i'm quite glad i don't have to go out it's fine yeah even the dog didn't want to go out yesterday I kind of looked out the door and went nope now we off you go but uh, <laughs> i'm not an idiot because actually we we've had a bit of a in england anyway and, and in the uk we've had a, a bit of a heat wave and it's made the quarantine lockdown working from home thing almost unbearable and you know when the rain came certainly in london where i am a few days ago it was a real alleluia moment for me i was like I was outside on the balcony, like Tim Robbins in the Shawshank Redemption, just sort of like hands in the air, looking up at the rain. And it was it was a moment. I was very smug about the heat wave. I hate hot weather. So I was talking to friends in England who were suffering and it was lovely and cool here. Yeah, I'm like that. We're, we're like myself and Jenny, like Jack Spradden and, and his wife, and that she hates, she's from South Africa, she just hates cold and damp, and I'm a winter <laughs> creature. I'm bred for the northern climes. And our next door neighbours are exactly the opposite. So he, she really likes the cold and he doesn't. And he at one point just, well, maybe we should swap. And I thought, well, let's keep that Let's keep that for like the, 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 the zero option, okay? There must be a little way around it, you know? We can open the window, she could wear an extra layer, but, you know, let's not get too desperate. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's one for much further down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's where you're, you're like six months into lockdown and thinking, okay, we need some kind of change of scenery here. Um, so we're going to talk about 
both of your new novels and um, also do our book off, as I mentioned later on, where each of you gets three minutes to pitches a book that you absolutely love, that you think we should all read, that many listeners may not know about. First, though, if I could come to you, Sarah, to talk about Summer Water, which is your latest, published by Picador. It's just come out. It's a wonderful book. I absolutely devoured it. And it was in two sittings because it's quite a short book. I mean, is it, is it a novella, would you say? I'm never quite sure how you define those. <laughs> um, it's longer than Ghost Wall and shorter than some of my others. But it, it's a really sumptuous book. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the campsite in the book and the day that that it is set across. Mm. Well, in some ways, it's even sadder than, it, than a campsite. It's a holiday park. Um, that's right, that's right. With identical log cabins. And it's on, on the shores of a loch, which I don't exactly name, but people who know Scotland will know pretty much where it is. And the book takes place over 24 hours of torrential rain. And it started fairly autobiographically. We were on holiday in a holiday park in a Scottish lock and it rained the whole time. And at the time I was working on a much heavier and more difficult novel. And I became fascinated by the lives of the other people on the holiday park. Nobody talked to anybody. It was bizarre. I mean, if there was ever a moment when the British were going to overcome their reserve and have a conversation, that would have been it. But we didn't. I think we were all watching each other. Certainly my, whole, my household was watching all the others. And I thought it was so strange that we were all there, really quite similar as far as I could tell, and in the same place at the same time, and all shut in to some extent by the rain. I mean, we put our coats on, went out anyway, because I had that kind of upbringing, and so do my kids. But it wasn't particularly easy or fun, and we were all, I'm sure, looking forward to the end of the holiday. But nobody really shared any of that. I got a sort of um, rear window vibe whilst reading mm. it. You know, that I mean, only it wasn't just one person sat in a wheelchair with binoculars. It was sort of everyone looking in on everyone else throughout the book. Yes. And the rain, it, what was interesting about the fact that it was, you know, meant to be the, the longest day of the year and, and yet it was absolutely hammering it down with that Scottish rain is that there was a real sense from I got from most of the characters that they wanted to be outside, but the juxtaposition was that they sort of, you know, the ones that did go out and the ones that stayed in, and there was a real sort of pull and push of, of who's going to brave the elements and who isn't. Yes. I mean, I used to think this sometimes on holidays with small children, that the trick is to stay out until it would be better to be in and then to stay in until it would be better to be out, and you keep doing that long enough and bedtime comes. Um, <laughs> and it was that... It, it's that kind of dynamic for the whole day that sometimes being inside is just so awful that being out in the rain would be better, but then you get really cold and wet and it's so awful that being inside with your family would be better and then then it goes the other way. And everybody <laughs> has a different level at which they have to get out. For the teenagers, of course, it's quite early. For older people, it can come a bit later. Motherhood and indeed fatherhood is a, is another theme in this book, which I'll I'll come on to in a in a moment. Um, John, if I could uh, come to you to talk about the Dirty South, and this is your latest novel. It's your am I right in thinking it's your eighteenth Charlie Parker book? The the well, yeah, eighteenth on a novella. So yeah, yeah, eighteen, 18 and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, said, I still don't know what a novella is either. But yeah, it's only that they can't charge quite as much for as a novel. I think. I yes, apparently not. No, yeah. <laughs> But Charlie Parker, for, for, for those, um, many listening will know your character, Charlie Parker, they'll have, they'll have read some of your other books, uh, and, and maybe some people listening have never picked up a, a John Connolly book before, but he is a younger Charlie Parker in this novel. It's, it's 97, I believe, and it's sort of a prequel. So tell us a little bit more about, about this book and the sort of culmination of the, the events in it. Well, yeah, it, it is set it, prior to the events of my first book. And one of the difficulties, I think, if you've been writing a series for a long time, is, is you build up a kind of weight of history. The character arrives a bit like Jacob Marley with all of these chains every time. Um, and as well, it can be quite difficult for, for a new reader to get involved. It's a bit like arriving at a party where everybody's already been having a long conversation and you're trying to nudge your way in with your, your glass of wine and, and you're trying to follow something that, that has obviously been progressing while and proceeding while you weren't there. Um, but it's also quite liberating for a writer to shake off a lot of that history and go back and say, I can I can start afresh. Um, I don't have to worry too much about what was said 15 books ago because the Parker novels form a kind of sequence and they, they do kind of build on each other in a way that mystery fiction has intended to, 
particularly. It was always very distrustful of that kind of sequencing. Um, and so it takes place in, in Arkansas in 1997 because it, it's, it's a very interesting period of history. We sometimes think of the South as being transformed by civil rights, and, and of course it was to, to, to a degree. Uh, but one of the great transformational moments in the South comes with the invention of air conditioning, which we don't really think about, because up until that point, you couldn't really have high-tech industry in the South. In fact, you could have very little industry that operated indoors because hey, it was just simply too hot to mm. work for much of the year. But also you can't manufacture components for uh, airplane engines or missiles or electronics in a humid environment. And so the invention of air conditioning in the kind of the 50s and into the 60s transforms the South. And suddenly you have an influx of, of what are largely high-tech companies aeronautical companies and military industrial companies. And they like it down there because there are very few unions, there are very few uh, environmental controls, and you get these extraordinary tax breaks because they're just looking to have money going in. So it's a situation that's, that was ripe for corruption, not just ripe for corruption, but ripe for, for towns being willing to sell themselves to big companies. Because if you had the possibility of transforming the lives of all your citizens, and all you had to do was agree to have a huge big company come in, or in some cases, a U.S. Missile Command went into southern towns. So you effectively cede control of your town to a company or to the military, and in return, you're going to be given prosperity. Your schools will improve. You know, you'll have better stores. Your children will have a better hope for the future. And so there is this trade-off that goes on, and I think that accelerated when Clinton was in power because Clinton, more than Jimmy Carter, was a real Southern politician, you know, and he knew that he had to look after people and he, he had made promises and those promises had to be fulfilled. And so that was an interesting period to come back to and explore because it, it is ripe with so many conflicts. And, and underneath it all, you have what are essentially a black underclass who are not going to benefit in quite the same way. They will see some kind of trickle down, but they're not going to benefit in the same way. And so the negotiation for them is, is very much more complicated. And also the, one of the difficulties when you say, it, it's essentially it becomes a historical novel. You know, I obviously grew up in Dublin. It's relatively easy for me to go to the US and research a contemporary novel. It's very, very difficult to, to research and write a novel that's set 23 years in the past because essentially you turn into Donald Rumsfeld. You know, there are known <laughs> unknowns, there are unknown unknowns. And you're just waiting to, to, trip, uh, to trip over things that, that are just, that, that you, you simply don't know are, are there buried in the undergrowth. But there's also a difficulty in that this is a society, even now, but particularly then, that's essentially run by white males. You know, the civil rights movement hasn't made that much progress in many ways. So it would be unusual to have a police department with, with a woman in charge, for example. It would, probably wouldn't have happened at all. Even when I was looking at contemporary reports, even small town police departments that employed women at all tended to get newspaper articles. It was like, look, a woman, you know, look, a Jewish fella, look, you know, a woman who can do math. All of these things become quite extraordinary. And you certainly wouldn't have black people in positions of power in those institutions. And so while you have to reflect the reality of that situation, you're also trying to comment upon it in some way, especially in light of, you know, events and certainly in the last year in the United States. It, it, so it, it is a process of negotiation. It's quite a complex business setting a novel in that region at that time. Yes, and I imagine it at some points must have felt a bit weird having, you know, having to have a male as the chief of police, etc., when you might actually like have liked to have written a female, but oh yeah, and you find be... yourself you find yourself shoehorning in a to a degree people of color and women into positions of authority that they probably wouldn't have had because in some ways the book would be unreadable to modernize. You know, it would be a very difficult read, yeah. a quite alienating read. So to some degree, you have to you have to make certain concessions. I think in order just and and that allows you to bring some of those issues into focus. To be fair, in your novel, John, there's a, it's a sort of a a, a small town and, and people knowing each other's business and there's, you know, two grotty motels and things. And Sarah, in, in summer water, obviously it's the, the holiday park is not a town, but there are residents because obviously there are characters in the book who own their cabin and they've been coming for years and things. I think David and Mary are the, the retired couple in the book who mm. are sort of mourning mourning the loss of neighbours who've, who've moved on, who've sold the cabin. Um, you mentioned that it sort of stemmed from you being on a holiday. How did you decide the characters that were going to tell this story? What made you choose Justine and David and Mary, Alex and Claire, etc.? 
it was very playful because this was really a distraction project from a another book that never saw the light of day it was it was just a bit of fun so I didn't really think okay we'll need an old person and a young person and we'll need some men and we'll need some women and you know I need to think very carefully about who's here I just started it and saw what happened and it's almost a relay race of a novel each character gets a couple of hours and then it switches to another character whom they encounter in some way it's not always a conversation sometimes it's just somebody looking out of a window and seeing somebody pass but at that point it moves on to someone else so it very much depended on who that character saw at that point and then I just kind of swung on to the next one. I love that description of a a sort of relay of a nod that's brilliant because it it does. It's it's almost like each chapter is the baton has been passed to tell yes. us about the next couple of hours in the day. Yes. Yeah. For reading both these, but I must apologise also, by the way, for the uh, for the neighbour above who's who's sanding their floor or <laughs> drilling their shelves. I thought, I thought I was here somewhere. I was looking <laughs> to see if, I, if I'd left a phone on or something. No. I thought I was having a stroke, you know. <laughs> One thing about living in a flat in London is you get great internet, but you also get people drilling their floors and walls and there's nothing you can do about the sound. So uh, I'm just throwing that out there as an apology. When I was listening to Sarah just there, I was thinking, Sarah, that sounds like a really crap holiday that you were on. I don't want to say, you know. <laughs> even within the kind of constraints that we're all living under, that, that sounds pretty terrible. <laughs> oh, we made the best of it. <laughs> Is it a place? Because I, I, I wondered if it was based on a real place, which obviously you don't name and as you said people who know will probably know but is is it a place you had been to before that you sort of frequented or was it a, a one-off it's i mean the, the holiday park was a one-off uh, never to be repeated the <laughs> place itself has been it's interesting because i've moved around a lot i was born in scotland grew up mostly in manchester went to university in oxford um, then lived in canterbury Reykjavik. Cornwall, the West Midlands, and now here in Ireland. So I've moved around a lot and there haven't been many places in my life that I've gone back to. I don't really like going back. I find it very difficult. But there's this one place in Scotland, which is very near where I was born. And there are, well, my mother always claims I learned to walk on that beach, but it's a very stony beach. So it would be a surprising (laughs) place to learn to walk. I certainly learned to swim in that water. And I've been back there all my life and I have good friends in Glasgow and when I go visit them, we go there and I've taken my kids back and it's one of very few points of return for me. So that that's where the novel is set. What's amazing about the book and, and it being so short is I got a real sense of the place, you know, not knowing where it's sort of set or anything about that landscape. I knew from your writing the sort of place it was I got I got a real sense of the the cabins of the lock of the the weather and similarly John with with yours you know I, I, I felt like I was there having never been to Arkansas and certainly not into a small town like Carrigal or anything like that I, I um I, I really felt like I was living in the town is it important that you have visited the places that you're writing about yeah, I'm a hopeless novelist and that I, I tend to be very bad at making things up. Um, so the, the more uh, input I have from, <laughs> from from real life, the better for me. So yeah, it, it becomes, for me, it's always been a, similar to the process of researching a film in that I go to a place, I walk around, I have a camera. I mean, the good old days I had a camera and now I obviously have my phone and a notebook. And then I try to spend a little bit of time in place and, and I will talk to people. I, I, I find that people, and Sarah has found this, people are very helpful. Uh, people generally want you to get things right. Um, mm-hmm. And they have all of these experiences that they're very often willing willing to share. Um, and so I end up with finding, finding two people. I, I, I was staying in a place called Hot Springs when I went... And Hot Springs is a very odd place. It's it, it's it was full of bathhouses, these old bathhouses, because it was where people used to go to take the waters for a long time. Uh, and gangsters used to go there to spend their to spend their because even gangsters need holidays, you know. And I was staying in this appalling hotel, which was like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. It was the most frightening hotel I'd ever stayed in. It was huge. It had weird things like abandoned barbers' chairs in corridors and and old speaker weight machines that didn't work anymore for no particular reason that I could see. 
and I loved a couple. Somebody got in touch with me and said, oh, I know exactly where you are, you know. Um, and they were a couple called Webbs, and it turned out that they had grown up in Arkansas just the period of time in the novel. So they were very helpful. And then I found this wonderful man called J.R. Howard, and J.R. Howard... Um, had served in every branch of law enforcement in Arkansas during his career. Uh, and he was just this extraordinarily generous man with his time and with his knowledge. And so what you do is you build up this massive information, your own personal experience, what you've got from other people. And then as I, it's taken me 20 years to learn this, to be honest, you then throw out 90, 98% of it. You know, it's, that's very mm. difficult. You whittle it down to really just the essentials because one of the, I suppose one of the difficulties of writing a historical novel, and, and I've read a couple of prequels recently where people have obviously gone back to rewrite, is they, they become over-concentrated on making sure that you know that they know about the period. So they're forever telling you what's on the radio, or you'll get one of those awful nods, you know, where somebody pulls out a big cell phone and they'll go, oh, cell phones, they'll never catch on, will they? And it's like <laughs> getting a big nudge in the ribs from the writer going, do you see what I did there? Um, and I was very anxious not to do that. So in many ways, while I was trying to recreate a particular time, it almost feels timeless in a way. It, it doesn't really have any concern with, with the music that's on or, or very many new technological developments. And to some degree, that's a reflection of the place. When I went to, when I was looking in the Washita, the Washita which is that area that the book is set, what, what struck me for the first time was they still have video libraries. Yeah. You know, when was the last time anybody here saw a video library? Well, they have video libraries for two very good reasons. One is that um, th there isn't uh, wide access to, to broadband internet. You know, they're up in the mountains, you know, so you don't have access to Netflix. You don't have access to these. A cable is mm. quite expensive to get up there. And also people are quite poor. And actually, I have friends in Maine who are in the same position. They don't have internet at home because actually it's just that expense that's slightly too far that they don't particularly need and they can piggyback on it at a Starbucks or if they're in work. And so, you know, and it was one of one, I, to slightly off that topic, one of the reasons why I got very annoyed a few years back, there were certain, a number of American writers in particular who had kind of sold themselves as shills to Amazon. You know, and we're not just prophesying the death of bookstores, but actually kind of preparing to dance on the graves of bookstores. And we're like, oh, we don't need bookstores. Everybody has access. You know, these tablets are really cheap. And so you can have the whole, the whole world's library at your fingertips. And that's all very well and good if you have internet. If you don't have internet, that thing is no good to you. And there's a reason why. That's one of the reasons why libraries and bookstores become become so important to us, you know. Um, Absolutely. So I was quite glad when, when history proved those people to be entirely wrong, because it does seem to me that to some degree that that at the very least, the ebook sales are plateaued and, and very possibly are going down. I can see it in my own figures that actually they're becoming less of a percentage of my overall sales than they once were. And I, I don't mind as long as people pay for books, but... I am very glad to see that that libraries and physical bookstores survived and, and are actually simply continuing to thrive, which is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we got slightly off the topic there, but it is interesting to see that actually it felt to some degree the Washita felt like a place out of time. And actually, yeah, we, well, we we went off off topic in a in a meander, but that a very good meander. And I, what I will say is. I have never been able to do e-readers and I am in a fortunate position to, you know, have the internet and and probably be able to afford one if I wanted one. But it, for me, it's all about having the physical book in front of me and holding it and taking it around with me. Yeah, and um, I also feel with your kids as well, one of the... Your kids learn by what they see around them. I mean, me and my kids, because we lived in a house full of books, it seemed quite natural for them to have access to books, that books would be nearby. They were curious about what they were, what function they performed, and so we would read to them. But if you have a house that you know doesn't have any books and all it has is, is a screen, it's essentially a distraction device on which you can read a book, but you can also do the, go on the internet, watch a film, uh, you know, play a game. All of those things are much more, to some degree, are much more immediately engaging than a book. A book requires some kind of investment investment of time and investment of patience. You have to learn the skill of reading to some degree. Um, I always think, you know, what happened if, the, if that future had come to pass? You would have had houses essentially that didn't have books in them, apart from the kind of lunatic collectors like me who, who love being surrounded by books, <laughs> even books that I might never read again, the fact that they had them on the shelf and knew that they were there. So I always thought it was very important that we forget that children are so visual that they look around and they see, what is this? What is this? What is the purpose of this? And what happens if you cut children off from that? If you put them in a world that essentially doesn't have books, what you have is simply, as we, can, as we know, is children who, who then don't read. Mm. Sarah, are you, uh, are you surrounded by 
physical books? Are you a, a, <laughs> po- possibly oh, yeah. not as mad a collector as John, but I imagine you have you have quite a habit too. Thanks, Joe. I, <laughs> I've just moved internationally with it was well, it was more than two hundred boxes altogether, and most of them were books. So yes, <laughs> wow. I'm familiar with this problem. Um, I've always been very resistant to eBooks and tablets, and then I went to Japan on my own for three weeks, in fact, to research a novel. And I realised at that point when I was filling my suitcase with hardbacks because I had all this lovely time alone coming up that I was clearly never going to switch to eBooks. I mean, if you'll travel to Japan with a suitcase full of books. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> no, but true. I, I love you, Sarah. You're great. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I love the packing process of them. Like, that is part of it for me, slotting them in around the clothes and making sure they're safe. Choosing, and, no, and choosing the books. Choosing, choosing them, the exactly, right books. John. Yes. yes, if anybody wants to come over and help me pack books when we buy a house soon, very welcome. <laughs> yeah, we're we're really busy. Thanks for the offer, but we're, we're quite busy <laughs> yeah. that day. John's only e-books. down the road. He can come. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even and say I'm going away somewhere. I can't no, wish I was there. You've got that excuse, no excuse. You now? <laughs> and, and Sarah, just just on that pre- previous point, not, not to dwell on it, but obviously you wrote summer water based on a place you'd been but it, it, for other books and for future writing is it important that you know it and and you like john you know you're speaking to people to, to get a real sense of it i was thinking about that because i always say that my books nearly always start with a place which is true but i think summer water is the first time certainly the first time for a while that i've set a book in an actual place usually there's a place that's a beginning and then i make it up which is partly because it's just more convenient. I mean, if you can move the rivers and the coasts and the cities around so that you can have people doing what you need them to do, that's a lot easier than being constrained by geographical reality. And I suppose also one has less responsibility to an invented world and, and less worry about upsetting people or getting things wrong. It feels safer in some ways. Yeah, and you don't get you don't get the old messages coming through. Going, I think you'll find that uh, you mentioned that uh, that railway track was uh, actually yes. going to you know, and you can you can sort of avoid all of that, can't you? <laughs> well, you'll always get someone who says, "Actually, I've checked what the weather was like in July, eighteen forty-seven, and I think you'll find." Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, John, I I spoke to a mutual friend of ours, Mark Billingham, very recently, who has published a prequel to his character Thorn uh, this year and he was saying that you know he tries to write his books so that anyone can come to them at any time but that actually you know for anyone who hadn't picked up one of his Thorn novels the new one is a great place to start just thinking about the Dirty South and thinking of listeners who may not know of Charlie Parker yet as a character would you say this is a a good in for new readers? Yeah, but it, it, it is. It's it's a obviously it's a book that allows people to 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 start again in a way, and it's quite nice in a series to give people little plateaus or little points at, at which at which they can come into a series. But it also, I I, I was very consciously trying to undo an error in the book uh, when I wrote my first novel. There was a confrontation between Parker uh, ultimately and and the man who may be responsible for what happened to his his wife and child and. And or who Parker knows is responsible, and and he he's trying to find out why this man might have done what he did. And the man gives him an answer in the book that I wrote back in when I was in my twenties, that I was never happy with. The reply that is, and it's a, it's a three word reply, and and I was never happy with it. It never encapsulated what I was trying to do. And so when I almost one of the reasons for writing the book was to allow that to be read in a different way. And so the book, the dirty said replicates that conversation to a degree but reverses the roles and suddenly that error that that was committed in every dead thing is no longer an error <laughs> the word the three words that are spoken actually assume a completely different meaning and have a completely different resonance because of it um so it was one of the things that interested me if you not just to go back but to go back and perhaps allow the books that follow to be read in a different way and to give readers who are already familiar with them almost a new perspective on characters that were really familiar to them, perhaps over-familiar to them yeah. by the stage. And now you look at them and think, okay, actually, that's a very... I've never really thought of it in that sense. I've never really looked at them. It's that sense of, of new light through old windows, I suppose. I'm, I'm due to talk to Mark on Thursday, so I'm only about a third of the way through Crybaby. But I'm, I'm enjoying it very much. I'm, I'm a big fan of Mark. <laughs> 
Yes, aren't we both? Um, and I suppose knowing a character as you do, having written Charlie for so many years now, it makes it easier to be able to go and write something like a prequel because you you sort of know what's ahead in his Yeah, I suppose you life. do. But also, but also when I began writing those books, I was in my 20s and Parker, when, by the time every damn thing was published, I was 30 and Parker in the books is about 32. And I'm 52 now. Mm. So suddenly, you know, Never. my... Yeah, no. How, how do you stay so youthful? Well, you know, there's a lot of goats and cockles being sacrificed in the basement, and it really does seem to be working. Um, but so my perspective on him is actually very different now. And it's funny, one of my Claire, who looks after some internet stuff, and we read it, and she said, you know, she'd forgotten how, in some ways, how difficult he is to like at that age, you know, or how troubled he yeah, is and how, yeah. how hostile he is. And and the character has mellowed so much that, that I almost had to go back and try and remember a time when he wasn't like that, you know, when he when he had so much rage and, and so much confusion. So it was mm. it was interesting. It was it was nice to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there, you know, which is a very good attitude I think to have to the past. <laughs> very good, yeah. Sarah, I'd mentioned earlier about this sort of theme of of motherhood, of parenthood in summer water and it's something that that just struck me and I couldn't quite put my finger on it but you know from the very opening of the book where Justine one of your characters is sort of up early and is going running and, and having a bit of time for herself before it's all about the kids there are other little mentions of mother children relationships and and the way that husbands and fathers are sort of approaching it as well and I know that you know this book sort of came out of writing another one and it's playful and everything, but did this did this sort of theme of parenthood just evolve as you were writing it or was it something you, you sort of wanted to put into it? It evolved. And I think partly it's inevitable writing about families on holiday because that's, that's almost the only <laughs> dynamic that's going on there. But I always, I mean, I, I, people sometimes say you, you write a lot about parents and children and I kind of think what else is there for the novel to do? I mean, you know, there are some answers to that question, but <laughs> it's the most basic shared experience. We don't all have children, but we certainly all have parents. And we all feel formed by our parents genetically, but also in narrative terms. And one of the legacies of Freud and psychoanalysis is that we think of parenting and family as storytelling. My father's story is this, and it creates my story in this way. I can explain how I feel now by looking back at the story of my mother so there's a sense in which family life itself is woven out of out of storytelling, out of fiction. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'd like to turn to the book off now. And this is where each of you gets three minutes to tell us about a book that you love, something we may know or may not, and you think that we should all read. Before I do that, I just want to ask you what you've been reading recently. With lockdown, I remember talking to some authors who said 
oh, I just haven't been able to read. Uh, you know, the concentration levels were down. And then by about May, June, you know, people picking books back up again or writing again, getting creative. Um, and I just wondered, uh, John, what have you been reading lately? I, I got to, went to a book that I, a, tri a trilogy of books that I had always meant to get around to, which was Edna O'Brien's Country Girls trilogy, which mm. I'd always been put off by because I thought it would be Irish miserabilism, I suppose, and, and having grown up in Ireland during during enough Irish miserabilism, I didn't think I needed to read books about it. But I, I was really surprised, certainly by the first two, about how just how funny they are and how clever and how touching, as well as being certainly for the I can see for the time. Uh, why they would have been so controversial in, in such an, an, an insular society in every sense of the world. Uh, the, the final novel I could have done without in the trilogy, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't think it matches up to the others. Uh, but the first two were, were quite, quite wonderful. It's like and the then, Godfather you, in that respect, is it? Yeah, it is. You kind of think you, you could have you left it alone. You know, Surely you were just doing that for the money by the end. Um, so so I, I really like that. And I, I guess, and I'm, I'm going to fess up a little bit here, I've become very conscious, I think, as a male reader, of just how often I tend to default to male writers. I became conscious of it about the last couple of years. It's just something that, you know, I should have realized a long time ago, but I but I didn't. And so I, I'm to say that I'm consciously trying to expand my reading is it probably makes me sound sadder than I really am, but I, I admit <laughs> to being a little bit sad. But I think it is something it's it's a weakness in male in male readers, I think, that we tend to to turn more frequently towards towards male readers than that. And I, a part I can hold my hand up and say, I could justify it in part because I'm such a nerd that so much of what I read tends to be music and film writing. And men in particular tend to immerse themselves <laughs> in the minutiae of music in a way that women don't often do because women tend to have much better things to be <laughs> writing about. But in, but in terms of fiction, uh, so I, in, and, and just... To some degree, reading Edna O'Brien was a slap on the wrist for me because it reminded me of how dumb I'd been for so very long. <laughs> At least I'm, even now, as the later in life, I'm trying to improve as a person. I keep telling that to my children and my other half, and they, they look at me skeptically as I brandish a book list and go, look, I'm a better person. Tick. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, what about you, Sarah? Have you been able to read? Have you been reading lots? Yes, I always read. and I was, always, I was slightly surprised by people who couldn't read in lockdown because I... Yeah, I read through everything, so it, <laughs> it didn't it didn't seem any different really. I've been reading um, Mark O'Connell's Notes from an Apocalypse, uh, which I liked very much. I read it quite early in lockdown, at a point where it seemed ridiculous to be reading anything apocalyptic because there the apocalypse was happening. But I really liked it because it's it's kind and clever. It's a book about people who, it's non-fiction. It's about people who are preparing for the apocalypse. So Americans in bunkers and the super rich buying up bits of New Zealand in the hopes mm. that they alone will survive with the cockroaches. But it's very kind and very clever. It's thoughtful and he's not making fun of people it would be very easy to make fun of. And he's acutely aware of but not self-lacerating about his own point of view. So yeah, I, I like that even though it was a slightly strange time to be reading it and a novel by Kawai Strong Washburn called Sharks in the Time of Saviors which is set in Hawaii and it was the first novel I'd read set in Hawaii I don't think I'd thought about Hawaii much at all before and beautifully written overcame my usual fixed objection to anything involving any kind of fantasy or alternative reality and there's not very much of it but it's a strand and I, yeah I, I really enjoyed that Fantastic. It's time for the book off. And before we find out who goes first, who goes second, let's find out the books that are going head to head. John, what are you putting forward in the book off? I'm putting forward a book called Child of All Nations by a German writer named Irmgard Kuhn. Fantastic. I don't know it, actually. So I look forward to hearing more. Uh, and Sarah, what is your choice? Dorothy Wordsworth's Grasmere Journals. Grasmere Journals, yes, uh, which will pop, they will have been written late 18th century? That's right, yes, yeah, 1790s, early so, 1800s. Yeah, right, fantastic. Okay, well, Sarah, um, you get to decide whether you'd like to go first or second. What would you prefer? Mm, I'll go first. You go first and get it over with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which means, John, um, you get to decide how you are ceremoniously cut down in your prime when the three-minute mark hits. So you can either <laughs> run out by the school bell or uh, 
honked out by the bicycle horn. Which they're would you both, prefer? They're both equally horrible, but yeah, I, they're they're for the sake of everybody, I think the, I think the bicycle horn is slightly less awful. <laughs> okay. You're Let's just get... stop before three minutes. So don't <laughs> yeah, I'll yes, keep an eye exactly. on my watch. 2.59. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you can bring it in just before, then um, I'll be very impressed. Um, you don't have to use your whole three minutes. That is, that's not part of it. But, but when the clock hits three, I will be uh, honking you out, John, and uh, ringing you out, Sarah. So um, I've put three minutes on the clock. It's over to you, Sarah, to start uh, and tell us about the Grasmere Journals by Dorothy Wordsworth. Thank you. I've chosen the Grasmere Journals because it was one of the books that helped me to understand the relationship between domesticity and writing and think in much less binary terms about how a person might combine living with other people, doing housework, being responsible for cooking with an intellectual life. And I'm going to read a very short paragraph, which will still fit within my three minutes. Sunday, the 7th of February, 1802. A fine, clear, frosty morning. The eaves drop with the heat of the sun all day long. The ground thinly covered with snow, the road black, rocks black. Before night, the island was quite green. The sun had melted all the snow upon it. Mr Simpson called before William had done shaving. William had had a bad night and was working at his poem. We sat by the fire and did not walk, but read the peddler, thinking it was done. But lo, though William could find fault with it, with no one part of it, it was uninteresting and must be altered. Poor William. The William there, of course, is William Wordsworth, who is much more famous than his sister Dorothy. But throughout this journal, you see how the work of writing is understood collaboratively. Dorothy does most of the housework and cooking, but there's a lovely bit where she pulls Wordsworth away from writing a lyric poem to go dig a path through the snow to the necessary, the necessary (laughs) being the outside toilet. And it's really about the integration of literary production with domestic work, with physical exercise, with just the basic responsibilities of being alive, the need to wash yourself and your clothes and make sure that there's food and take the rubbish out. And having had a very traditional education, I'd always thought of those things as being in tension with each other, that the washing up would stop you writing or doing the laundry would mean you couldn't read. And this book for me modelled a very beautiful way of holding all of those things together in a relaxed and creative way. And thinking about authorship, not just as the work of the genius on the mountainside, which Wordsworth is often imagined to be, but as something that's produced in a household alongside other kinds of making. And it's also very beautifully written and set in the Lake District. Wow. Oh, look at that. You've got, you've got about 35 seconds to go there. Did you do that on purpose so that you started uh, getting that, Sarah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely uh, pitch, and uh, we'll talk more about that book in a mo but you can have a little breather now Sarah you can have a rest because it's over to John um I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you and uh it's over to you John to tell us about Child of All Nations well Child of All Nations is a book that was published in 1938 by Ermgard Kuhn and Kuhn uh had been uh, the Nazis had declared her an immoral and un-German writer and so she had to write and publish under pseudonyms before eventually she fled Germany um, and the book is is told from the perspective of a child called Cully, and Cully is nine years old, and her parents have been declared non-citizens by the Nazis, so they have no passports, and they are refugees trying to get out of Europe. And her father is a writer. Uh, he's relying on advances. He hustles. He's forever taking advances from one publisher for a book that he might eventually write, and advances from another publisher for the same book, and hoping that he won't get caught. Um, and the mother is trying to her best to hold the household together. But Kuhn's, her what she does brilliantly, uh, the, the great creative decision in the book is that, in fact, Kuhn at the time would have been closer to the age of the mother than the child. But she gives Cully the awareness of an adult. Uh, so Cully is very funny. She's very clever. She sees through people. She has a knowledge that a nine-year-old girl shouldn't really have. There's a wonderful line where, where she, she wonders why people complain about giving, that they won't give the money because she says money isn't something that becomes unhappy or starts crying if you leave it. You know, it annoys me when people don't hand over their money when we need it. Um, And it could be a really depressing book. 
but it isn't because Cully is so funny and, and the book is suffused with hope. And I find Kuhn a very interesting figure because um, she got back, she managed to sneak back into Europe. She managed to sneak back into Germany via the Netherlands, apparently because the Daily Telegraph announced her suicide. And so the Germans thought she was dead and she managed to slip back into the country. Although her, <laughs> her biographer wasn't entirely sure. He wasn't entirely sure this was true. And he had a lovely uh, description for the fact that she liked mythologizing her life. And he said at one point that Irmgard Kuhn had a very special relationship with the facts of her life, which is something that, I, that I've now adopted for my own. And people <laughs> tell me that, you know, you're lying. I go, well, actually, I have a very special relationship with the facts of my life. Um, and so she, she ended up in poverty. She suffered a lot from alcoholism and mental illness and was rediscovered towards the end of her life. And actually, for the last four or five years of her life, she was an acclaimed book. But in this time of refugees from war and conflict, uh, where we see them every day on the news, it's an extraordinarily relevant book. And it's a beautiful, hopeful, funny book. And I just wholeheartedly love it and wholeheartedly recommend it. Oh, fantastic. Another one at 2.25 there, John. So you had Seconds to Spare as well. Oh, you both done it on purpose. I'm still going to give you the horn, though. Oh, God. Um, as it were. Uh, <laughs> what, a, what a rotten human being you are. Huh? <laughs> no. You know, even before lockdown, people didn't want to be in a room with you. <laughs> Do you know what? The, some people tune into this podcast just to hear those two sound effects. So, you know, um, fabulous. Thanks, John. Um, have a breather. Sarah, I loved this idea which is obviously the the reason you picked it of this domesticity and the sort of life of you know academic and literature sort of combining something which I suppose really hadn't really thought about and you don't think of Wordsworth as like having to dig the trench really do you <laughs> no <laughs> but they were very poor at this point. It was years before he became famous mm. and he's digging the path to the loo and he's picking apples and he's chatting to people who come by and walking miles to post things and helping Dorothy wash her hair and hanging up the laundry. And is it a sort of a nature writing as well? Is it is it a sort of love letter to where they were at the time? I think it's more practical than a love letter. She's mm. very, very attuned to shifts in light and weather and the changing of the seasons and the passage of, of beggars and farmers and people working the land. But she is, as Wordsworth actually also was in a lot of his poetry, rigorously practical about it. Um, there's no attempt to brush poverty and suffering under the carpet. They go mm. to the funerals of village children who die. They console the mothers they have to decide how much of their own pretty limited resources they're going to share with passing beggars. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, there's nature writing in that there's a lot of appreciation of the natural world, but it's it's not romantic in that in that sense. Right. And I love the thing you said in 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 the pitch. You said the um, basic responsibilities of being alive, which I just thought is a lovely sort of <laughs> term phrase. Really, it's why I write so much about daily life in my fiction, because that is actually how most of us meet life most of the time. The things that we spend a lot of time doing are the washing up the laundry, yeah. finding the kids' shoes, remembering <laughs> to go to the bank, picking up some apples on the way home. And that's, I mean, thinking about it recently, we don't live, we think in eras, but we don't live in eras, we live in moments. And so I'm interested in writing those moments. And that's partly a political decision that if we decide that what most people and particularly most women actually spend most of their time doing is not worthy of literature, that's not a literary thought, that's a political thought. Well, I, I thought it was a great pitch and uh, it's definitely a book that I'll want to seek out. And uh, John, again, uh, I, I hadn't heard of Child of All Nations at all, but you've sold it to me there, uh, especially... When you first started talking about it and, you know, you even mentioned this in your pitch, I thought, gosh, that could be a bit heavy. But actually, like you say, because of Cooley and because she's funny and she's got this sort of adult awareness, um, actually, it's it's a book, a hopeful book. And it sounds a bit like it's even, you know, in, in, in sort of humorous and light in places. It is. It's it's surprisingly so. It, it, yeah, it, it, it reads like sophisticated 1930s comedy, thanks to that voice. And it's actually really short. It's, it's just been, it was reissued a few years ago as Penguin Classic, and it's only about 100 or 130, 20 or 130 Ooh, pages perfect. long. It's a really, yeah, it's a lovely <laughs> short read. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, a bit like, you know, the, the, I presume the people that they were staying with in the book kind of went, geez, I hope you're not going to stay longer than a week, you know, <laughs> uh, much as I love you and sympathetic though I am to your point. Um, <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a really wonderful book. And it was one of those, again, I 
really want to harp on about bookstores, was one of those serendipitous things. One of the things I love about bookstores is when staff members do a handwritten note about a book and stick it on yes. the shelf. And they're clearly the ones who've gone to the manager and say, we need to get, I can sell 20 copies of this book because I love it. And and I very rarely pass one of those by without reading it. And, and more often than not, I'll, I'll take a chance on the book. And that was one of those fortuitous discoveries. Yeah. Well, John, you can harp on about bookshops all you like on this podcast because we do. We celebrate the joy of them and uh, how much we love them. So always welcome. Um, I also loved the uh, the character of the, of the dad mentioned there, this sort of hustling writer who gets advances but never actually delivers. Yeah, we don't know anybody like that. You know, thank <laughs> yeah. you. That's com- complete fiction, you know. We're all trustworthy individuals, you know. As my publisher taps the watch for the book that's going to be exactly. delivered on Thursday, going, it is coming, isn't it? <laughs> What's he swanning off recording a podcast with Joe <laughs> for? What's he talking to the Haddo Joker for, you know? <laughs> I loved hearing both of those. So thank you for bringing the books to our attention i've got to pick one to take home and uh as it were because you know we're not in the same room so i can't nick it off you i'm going to choose the child of all nations i think this time because it sounds like it's as you said john very relevant for now i'm shocked but i'd like to thank everybody who made this possible (laughs) (laughs) my mum my dad Having said that, the Grassmere journals sound brilliant as well, and Sarah, I'll be sure to check those out. I do find now, I, I don't know if this is just a, something I've discovered or it's because I've got a bit older or I'm reading more, whatever it is, but I actually quite like to read fiction and then read non-fiction, sort of, you know, one and the other and flip-flop between both. It's it's almost like I get I get a break from fiction by going into a non-fiction world and then I come back and, you know, it, it's a balancing act now, but... Maybe this could be one of my non-fictions that, that falls in between some of the novels I've got coming up. It's been a pleasure having you both here. Thank you so much for your time, for your recommendations. Summer Water by Sarah Moss is out now. It's published by Picador. And The Dirty South by John Connolly is also out now. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton. And they are both absolutely fabulous. I can't recommend them highly enough. And if you haven't read a Charlie Parker novel before, then this is a very good place to start. And if you haven't read a Sarah Moss novel before, this is equally a really great place to start. Um, Sarah, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully next time we'll be in the same room and uh, after speaking, recording, or whatever it is we're doing, we'll head over and enjoy a nice pint together. It would be lovely, John. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Cheers. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.